Hi there, I'm Microsoft XP's godfather. I knew him probably better than anyone else here. XP was known by everyone, literally everyone, even grandmas in China. And he went everywhere too. That Internet Explorer I gave him sometimes led him into some very scary places, even though I told him not to do that countless times. Whenever he did, he would get the nastiest illnesses that would make him mutter pointless numbers and turn blue all over. I told him that he better keep watch of his stuff better. He had some locks on the doors, but his friends would always break in and steal stuff. He was preceded in death by his father, Windows 2000, and his grandfather, Windows NT. He is survived by his son, Windows Vista, and his grandson, Windows 7, and his great-grandson, Windows 8. Uh, hey, uh, nice to see you here. Uh, XP and some of my kids never got along, uh, mostly because they considered each other the scary family across the street. Sometimes I think I should be surprised by being here. But I think that changed when I went over to one of XP's party with all of my music. I will never forget that night, because everyone liked it. After that, I would never have to worry about whether I was having dinner ever again. Some of XP's relatives got inspired and they tried to be musicians. But they weren't all that popular. But, but that's okay, because XP brought joy to everyone. Until he held his breath and his face turned blue. Hey, this is Control Structure, episode 58 for April 8th. 2014, uh, uh, big week to everyone listening. Uh, this show does have show notes if you're not, uh, you know, actually looking at them right now. Uh, visit thenexus.tv/cs58 to see them. So uh, with me here is uh, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Hi. So uh, you know what today is, right? Yes. Today at midnight, in three hours from this time when we are recording. Three hours, 47 minutes, and 52 seconds, XP support will end. And uh, what will we say then? Goodbye, XP. So, yeah, this is sort of our uh, memorial here in the uh, the final hours, uh, even though you've already heard the eulogies. Um, I thought that was kind of clever. So, um, yeah, um, can you uh, speak of some of your memories surrounding Windows XP? Well... I mean, it's sort of weird having memories of an operating system, though, but... <laughs> like, when I, you, like the first time you started using it or something? I, I actually can remember XP coming out, and I remember we bought a computer that had ME on it, and the deal was it was one of those things where you buy it before XP comes out, but then they would send you XP later so you could install it. So we uh, had like, ME... Like an upgrade or something? Yeah, yeah, an upgrade. For it. And so we had ME for a while and it was terrible. And then we, we got XP and installed it, but it didn't help the computer itself very much because it had like 128 megabytes of RAM. So Ooh. <laughs> that was back in the day. Yeah, I, I remember having Windows 2000 on 128 megs of RAM and it did okay, but you really couldn't do much. 
Yes. I'm, I'm amazed thinking back, like, uh, we used to have a Windows 98 machine that had 64 megabytes of RAM, and it came, yes, and it came with a, a DVD drive, and that was a big deal at the time. It had, right. you know, it had a DVD player on it. I remember we got some movies, uh, our first DVD movies ever that we ever owned, and tried playing them on there, and uh, they played okay, but it would kind of like pause and be jerky from time to time. But now thinking back, and it's like 64 megabytes of RAM, and we're playing DVDs on that, it's it's like, <laughs> that's pretty impressive. I mean, crap, my Raspberry Pi has more RAM than that. I know. <laughs> so, uh, I guess I was sort of late to the party with Windows XP. Um, see, it was around 2002, I think it was, that, uh, you know... Uh, we had saved up enough money from mowing lawns all the time to buy a sort of nice machine at the time. And uh, my uncle decided to put Windows 2000 on it. And, you know, that was pretty great. You know, it was it had, you know, especially coming from, say, Windows 98, it had about 98% of what Windows XP had, uh, at least as far as, like, the kernel level and, like, the arrangement of all the settings and stuff. Um, so it wasn't until about 2000 or 2006 when I got a uh, Acer Ferrari laptop and that had Windows XP on it and uh, you know by that time you know all my friends and stuff had uh, you know bought or built computers and they had all had XP on it so I think I remember it might have been Age of Empires 3 that uh, we tried to install install it at a LAN party and it wouldn't go because it was Windows 2000 it actually demanded XP um (laughs) So, uh, I think we, like, might have just copied over the game files and stuff, and it ran pretty good to a point where eventually all of my stuff would explode for absolutely no reason. Uh, at least all the <laughs> stuff, at least all the stuff in-game. Like, I was still in the game, but, like, all my stuff was destroyed. So, you know, that's, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was because I wasn't running XP. There's a reason why they didn't support XP on the installer. <laughs> or they didn't support Windows 2000 on the installer. Or 2000, yes. So, um, yeah, so I used Windows XP for a while, and then I went to uh, Newmont, uh, where they had the uh, MSDN, uh, was something on the MSDN, like the uh, Academic Alliance or something, and I was able to get Windows Vista 64-bit and put it on... Uh, uh, put it on my Ferrari there. I got the the Vista back when uh, they had the release candidate one out, and you you send them like five dollars, and they would mail you the DVD. It was like the, the five dollars was to cover the shipping. Right. And I, I remember I got that, and it was fun. It had like the speech recognition in it and everything. It was it was it was fun seeing. So it. I somehow I think I might have actually downloaded the ISO for like one of the Vista betas, and I told people, yeah, I have Vista, and I remember Nathaniel, I think it was, that uh, he asked, so uh, what's it like? What's it like? And I remember like a few years earlier that it was in my uh, uh, computer programming class that uh, we had, we were running Linux at the time. And uh, so the teacher said, you know, gave us, you know, some live CDs. Uh And, uh, you know, I I toyed around with them a little bit, but Linux kind of sucked back in like 2005 or so. Um, at least for someone who wants to game, at least. Yes. So, and someone who had a relatively new ATI card. Um, but that's a whole other story. Um, 
But uh, so, you know, I remember asking him, so has you tried out, you know, the Linux CDs yet? And they're like, uh, no, we just have the CDs. We don't actually use them. So I was able to flip that back at him. He's like, well, I have Vista like you have Linux. <laughs> and he's like, what in the world do you mean? He's like, well, I possess it, but I do not use it. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So, uh, but yeah, I sort of got into uh, Vista about maybe a, not quite a year after it came out. And it was okay back then, at least on the, uh, on the hardware that I was running it on. Like, literally, it did not blue screen once mm -hmm. in the year or so that I was heavily using it. XP would blue screen about once a month. I, so. I've seen XP be relatively stable. It's really 98 that I remember blue screening a lot. And Emmy, I think, would just crash and freeze and stuff like yeah. that. I, I remember an installation of Windows 98 that uh, I think we had a computer breakdown around 2001. And my uncle had like a few machines lying around and they each had a different motherboard. So like going through about three or so computers that... At the end, I was lucky if it blue screened once a day, and that was it. So that's kind of bad. <laughs> yes. So, and then, uh, anyway, my Ferrari had the Vista on it, and uh, my ThinkPad still had XP on it for a long while after with that, uh, because that's what the school image was. If you were adventurous and wanted to have Vista on it, you could install it yourself, but at that point you were, you know, pretty much on your own. Yeah. Um, and if there was any problem, well, re-image was <laughs> pretty much the solution for everything. It's like, you know, oh, Office wouldn't work. Re-image, your hard drive fell out. Re-image. <laughs> remember hearing that story. <laughs> so, and then, uh, wasn't... So my first job, uh, that was all Windows XP, except that a few architects had, uh, 7, um... Second job, I uh, believe it was all Vista on those laptops. Third job, because the company had like gone broke or something, it was still on XP, and that was like two years ago. But wow. uh, but uh, yeah, I moved to this job, and pretty much everyone's on seven or eight, uh, except That's... I think two people are left on Vista. Back uh, a few years back, when I worked at a school district as a just like a temporary technician, I helped them reimage their entire network. Uh, into Windows 7 from XP. Uh, they had like, I think it was two or three thousand machines in the whole network. So it's like we went from school to school to school, just like using uh, Norton Ghost to cast each and every machine. How, oh, Windows 7, how progressive of them. I know. Uh, you might want to speak to Ryan because uh, he does like some sort of, uh, uh, it's like some sort of adult education program. And, you know, he's, he goes into the school that, you know, he went through. Uh, think of like his middle school or high school or something, and he continually complains about their use of XP. So <laughs> I I think I remember that in in the comments of one of the show notes. Yeah, I think he he will give you an earful of that. Yeah, it's definitely a long time for most places to upgrade XP. So I I like the advice on uh, the official Microsoft website to users. Uh, in, it says for home users, it says you can purchase a new PC if your current PC can't run Windows 8.1. It might be time to consider shopping for a new one. Be sure to be sure to explore our great selection of new PCs. 
And then on on that link, they tout how today's PCs cost a third less than what Windows XP computers cost in 2002. So, <laughs> yeah, thing that you buy their they're kind of turning into Mac. They're selling the hardware. Wow, that's well. I mean, they have Xbox and they have Surface as well. Yeah. So, um, and then what are they like four hundred dollar machines or something? Let's see. Their tablet and laptop in one they're saying starts at two seventy nine. Your laptop two forty nine and all in one without a tower five hundred. So yeah, that's pretty much how much I spent on my video card alone. <laughs> so mine was only a hundred, but on the other yeah. hand, I need cables to plug it in. I should have bought one with two HDMI ports. I looked at them, but yeah, I should have bought not bought a uh, AMD one too, probably. Uh. But uh does have does support mantle though, if I ever want to play with that. Probably uh, I would never play with it, but So then uh also of a uh, small note, uh Office two thousand three support uh ends uh coming up here, uh, same as XP, along with all the versions of Internet Explorer running on Windows XP. Um pretty much everything except for Microsoft Security Essentials on XP. Which will be running through, I think, July of next year. So, so here's an interesting question. Uh, in Vista, not Vista, I think probably Vista, but in Seven at least, you have the XP mode, which is actually a VM of XP. Being that's a VM, being that it's connected to the internet, do we not need uh, Security Essentials installed on it if we want to use an application that uses the internet on that VM? I think that would be solved by the security essentials on the host Windows 7. But if it can actually access the hard drive of the VM, or does do they scan the image file? I'm not sure how that works. I think it might be more of like a hybrid type of deal, but I haven't really looked into XP mode much myself. So Because it is a real VM. Now, they, they have like shortcuts where you would click on it and you start menu, whatever, and then it brings up like the VM in like this windowed mode that only shows a program. So they do some magic there, like kind of like how Citrix works. If you're yeah. familiar with it, it looks kind of like that. But that you can also bring it up in the VM, and it is an actual VM of XP. So presumably, I could download a virus and install it on XP. <laughs> and the scope of it would be to the VM. I think I don't think the scope would be outside of the VM, but within the VM, I would have a virus. Oh uh, yeah, you might want to get that checked out. <laughs> so, um, but uh, you might be rather bored of the default wallpaper that comes with Windows XP. You know, the gr- uh, green rolling hills, the blue sky, and whatnot. Um, apparently, like, no color enhancement was done on this. And it w- it's, was an actual real photo from, like, 1996 in uh, Napa Valley, California. It was apparently taken, like, right after a rainstorm. So, and it's apparently just a vineyard, like a wine vineyard. And, uh, you know, uh, ZD, or not ZDNet, uh, CNET has a interview with the photographer that took the photo. And uh, he mentions that he's sort of tired of it. And uh, you know, and he also talks about some of the neat places that he's seen it. Uh, so, like, apparently one time an American photography photographer was allowed to go into North Korea. Uh, one of the photographer's images was in some power plant, and there's a big uh, screen where two men are, were sitting. What's on the screen? Bliss. <laughs> so, and uh, 
then in the White House, you know, there's the Situation Room. Uh, you know, there's tons of monitors in there, and what was on one of them in apparently one photo? Bliss. <laughs> so it's it's interesting. Uh, oh, where did the article say that? Uh, it's about mm, halfway he, down the article. I, I was I was looking. You were, were saying that that the guy who took the picture he said uh, he I, I guess he has a non-disclosure agreement, so he can't say how much it was. But supposedly it says it was one of the largest amounts ever paid for a single photograph. So it's kind of interesting that Windows forked out a lot of money for it. You think I don't know. You, you think they'd somehow be able to buy the rights for it without having to pay a lot of money? Yeah. But, find free ones that were open source online. But I mean, how how many copies of Windows XP has there been sold? Like probably billions. Yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely it's not a big deal for Microsoft. I'm just saying the value of a photo. I mean, what? It's just a photo. Yeah. You would think that it wouldn't be worth so, that much. Apparently, he submitted it to Corbis, a stock photo and image licensing service founded by none other than Bill Gates in 1989. Uh, let's see, when he, when the photographer submitted Bliss, there was maybe 50 photo, you know, 50 photographers on there. Uh, today, there are over a hundred million images in the database. So, yeah, this is probably no doubt the, mm, probably the most widely viewed photograph of all history. <laughs> I bet it is. You know, it's, if it's in the White House and if it's in a North Korean power plant, it's probably everywhere. Probably. <laughs> so, but hey, speaking about everywhere, uh, H-1B visa applications. Uh, in the fringe, I had to explain to you what they were, but uh, H-1B visas are what companies use to sponsor Indian people to come over here and work. And uh, so the, uh, how should I say, the opening date for registrations for 2015 uh, recently happened. I think it might have been the first of the month. And in less than one week, the entire allotment or allowance, uh, the application limit for H-1B visas was reached within a week. So uh, in 2013, 124,000 people applied for the combined 85,000 slots in the first five-day period. So do they have to renew them? In, from this pool, or this is this a pool of new people coming in? I think it's new people coming in. Okay. So, and, you know, I was thinking about this, and I was kind of surprised that, you know, granted, if there was no application limit, you know, granted, our salaries would go down a little bit, maybe. <gasps> That's probably quite likely. Even though, I mean, some of them are but, very good, but then sometimes some of them but that's true of anyone. But though, being but being an American, I'd rather have people working in Baltimore than Bangalore. Yeah, definitely having having because I, if if they're living in the U.S., they spend money in the U.S., which makes jobs in the U.S. That which, which apparently which apparently are something that no one has anymore. <laughs> yes. So, anyways, you were trying to say something. Let me go. Um. Oh, about that. I've I've heard that. Uh, outsourcing coding that typically the quality goes down and even though if it might be done by foreign people in the US that typically the quality is better in the US I've, I've heard that don't know why all that's true but so e even in that sense of bringing people in it probably is better still probably because there's a threshold of that you sort of have to be of a certain quality in order to come over it sort of has a filtering effect maybe 
that that would make sense and maybe perhaps maybe the the market is uh harder to get into maybe in the u.s so perhaps that that filters and further Raspberry. 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 So, uh, you recall that one Quake 3 challenge? I do remember it. They were offering, what was it, $10,000? Yeah. So, uh, uh, say, I think it might have been last week, or last week, last episode, excuse me, because we're now on a fortnightly schedule. Um, so, uh, last time we had discussed, uh, talked about. Uh, Raspberry Pi, the uh, video drivers being open sourced, and uh, they had announced a uh, sort of uh, prize or a bounty of getting Quake 3 to run at like 30 frames per second. So uh, apparently, uh, this has already been reached. Uh, I believe it was the guy who was already sort of familiar with the uh, GPU on the Raspberry Pi. I like the instructions they gave. They were quite detailed and reproducible, it seemed, of how to set up the Pi and what you needed to download and, and how to compile the kernel and how to overclock the Pi so it would compile faster. It seems that, according to the article, it would take 10 hours to compile the kernel on the Pi. Yeah, the uh, the instructions of how to do this are very convoluted, but... Uh... Um, maybe, maybe this has already been committed to the uh, Raspbian repos, so maybe you can just, like, do an apt-get update, and uh, you'll have it. It wouldn't surprise me if it comes very soon if it's not in there. When, yeah. when was this broken? I believe it was last week sometime. Last week. So that that's enough time to get get a patch out there, maybe, and get, get something going. So and then they also uh, give instructions of how to compile the Quake Three. So, yeah, good job. So uh, now with uh, Windows XP being dead, you might want to move to another operating system. Uh, Ubuntu fourteen o four LTS Trusty Tar uh, will be released on April seventeenth, and it is in in final beta right now. So uh, yeah. I can't wait for the uh, Ubuntu 15.04 release, Vulgar Vulture, or the uh, 17.10 Abominable Armadillo. I, I think I like the Abominable Armadillo the best. That one's pretty good. <laughs> um, so that's just a joke on the uh, the Ubuntu release names. Uh, by 15.04, it'll be to the V, uh, which will be like next April's release. And then this is assuming that they uh, can find, uh, you know, some sort of animal with uh, uh, that begins with the letter X, which I believe you have a suggestion for. That That's not an animal, but it it means, oh, I forget how that's even pronounced. I googled that. Xylophagus. It was something like that. Xylophagus. Xylophagus. There we go. And it means, I just closed the tab down. Something about eating, I guess. Eating wood, I think. 
an insect or lure by feeding on or boring into wood. Anyways, I, I into your Ubuntu name generator link, I typed in XP, and out came Xylophagus XP. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the names that Ubuntu has are sometimes, you know, makes you scratch your head a little bit. So, but, uh, yeah, it looks like I might be, uh, I'll probably be upgrading my server. Uh, I've been running on the last LTS release, which would be 12.04. And uh, coming up in this uh, podcast, you'll be uh, hearing the reason why, at least a good reason to do it, and fast. Uh, But uh, uh, I will be buying some hard drives online to, uh, you know, upgrade my server with uh, and do the BTRFS stuff with it. Uh, So, yeah, bigger, better. Uh, so, hey, you remember AMD? I do remember AMD. Hey, you just bought one of their video cards, right? Did just buy one of their video cards. So, uh, AMD has renewed their deal with Global Foundries to include GPUs. So, Global Foundries is their, uh, it used to be the part of the company that used to make all their chips. You know, it actually got silicon and all the other metals and stuff to actually, you know, create a CPU out of it. Mm-hmm. And they spun that off a few years ago to cut costs a little bit, but um, so they're sort of contracting out to them now. And they, you know, in their deal renewal, they have finally decided to include GPUs in this. So this is not, you know, the CPU APU kind of deal with the, you know, the graphics on the CPU. This is actual full blown graphics cards yes. processors, um, which, you know, if you recall the. Uh, uh, the GPU division that used to be ATI, and back about eight years ago, uh, AMD bought them, and this is something that should have happened about eight years ago. Could could be they had factories and processes going, and they just didn't want to make the switch over fast, and so they've had time to kind of plan the upgrade and well nicely. Well, and then uh, previously ATI had contracted out to uh, TSMC. Uh, to do their uh, chip building. Also, oh, they had to fulfill those contract obligations? Although, I wouldn't think that it would have lasted eight years. You'd think it might be shorter, maybe on a two- or three-year contract rather than a decade contract. But they, they always say, though, that with merging companies, you have the issue of jobs. It's like you've got people from both companies, and yeah. people get upset. If you just fire everyone... That's not going to go over so well with people. So you've got to like merge them and somehow reallocate them so people are somewhat happy and you keep the the good talent around at least. Yeah, but uh, you know, ATI did not have foundries, so I mean, they must have had contract negotiators. But uh, uh, anywho, uh, remember Unreal Engine four? Yes, that that's the one we talked about last podcast and how they're releasing their. Uh, pricing model to be a subscription based so you can get it for what's it, 19.99 a month now you can get access to the source code and their IDE program to design the virtual worlds yes uh, so unreal engine 4 that is old and busted because unreal engine 4.1 is coming uh, this time with linux support and free elemental assets so the uh, all the assets that they use to create the uh, elemental uh, demo that demo video, uh, that'll be apparently be included. Uh, and you can get all this, uh, all these updates for free with your Unreal Engine subscription later this month. 
this is just like you have Steam OS, and then now you have this opening up for people to write games much easier, nice games for Linux. It's just really going to open up the gaming market for Linux a tremendous amount. Oh, yeah, and uh, things are going to get very pretty very fast, hopefully. Yes, you and know, then the whole... What? You know what? I cannot wait for the port of 2048. <laughs> I think it's already works. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I wonder if, like, what, uh, like, Unreal, like, the, uh, the contract is for, like, free, small, one-off games like that. It would be interesting to figure out. Would it still fall underneath the their what six percent of your your profits probably? Yeah, but you know, I believe it's like five percent. But five percent of zero is still zero. Exactly. <laughs> you better not. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, multiplication there. You better not divide, or bad things will happen. Yes, but you can multiply just fine. So, but uh, let's talk about. Uh, Epic Games for a second. Uh, the guy there, the uh, Tim Sweeney guy, um, he was uh, recently interviewed by Polygon, and he talked about the future of game development. He talked about changing platforms and even a little bit of VR. So, And I liked some of the stuff that he uh, said here. Uh, he said that we really wanted to give indies all the same advantages that Epic had and that AAA developers had in the past. So there's nothing artificial holding them back from their success. We've been debating opening up the engine source for about 10 years. We've always had some fear about what it would do to our business, or whether it would leak out or attract patent trolls. Uh, but this time around, with the rise of the indies, the benefits to the world of releasing the code far outweighed the negatives. So... And uh, he uh, apparently they're really supportive of uh, Steambox and Linux and, you know, the Steam OS. And he sort of shares some uh, stuff with uh, Gabe Newell in that he said that I generally worry about the future of Microsoft. They've locked down this Windows 8 uh, with regards to the Metro RT, the Windows RT apps. And they say that the future of app development and developers should focus there but you can only ship with their permission and their approval through their store. And it sucks compared to the open nature of the PC platform before. Steam has been a great democratizing factor on PC, and if Microsoft forecloses on PC, all the developers will shift to other alternatives, like Steambox and Android. So does the Windows attitude about these apps, does that remind you of Apple and how they have their app store and you have to get the approval to sell your app on the app store and everything? Uh, a little bit, but far as I know, you can still buy software for Mac and install it and not have to even touch the app store. This is true. So, um, but they haven't really, you know, choked all of it. And I think, at, you know, for the, uh, like the Windows store, that Microsoft was more of a, you know, hey, wait up, guys, I want to do this too sort of deal. I think the fruit, I'm, I, I don't have an iPod, but my brother does. And it sounds like you pretty much have to unlock it, though, to install third-party software. Like, pretty much you're stuck yeah. unless you unlock it. That's, so at least for the mobile devices. Yeah, that's uh, jailbreaking. Yes, that's the term I wanted. Uh, I sense a kind of renaissance at MS in the past six months, Sweeney said, adding to the fact that he's given direct feedback to the powers that be, hoping to affect change. Talking to the DirectX team, for example, they're making some brilliant decisions to make it more efficient than ever. 
You just generally sense a momentum to be more open with the community and be more broad with their Windows strategy. I'm hoping that takes root. And that seems to have, you know, happened, I mm. believe, at the latest build conference that uh, if a device is like nine inches or smaller, uh, that Windows will be free for that device. Really? Yeah. So uh, uh, Sweeney goes on here. I'm more excited about Epic now than ever before. It finally feels like a return to the best parts of the shareware days in 1991 when we would release a game to the world through bulletin boards and be judged purely on its merits. We would like to sell uh, games directly to customers, and we would uh, we were entirely in control of our own destiny. It was all about making great games and succeeding if we were able to do it. We're back at that point now. We're providing our engine directly to customers and our game directly to customers. So it looks like he's you know actually doing stuff that is really upbeat. So, uh, hey, let's talk about Microsoft for a little bit. Okay. And not Windows XP. <laughs> so, uh, can you tell us a little bit? Uh, the .NET compiler, Roslyn, they've released it as open source. I think it's actually been out for a while now. Uh, yeah, so from what I can tell, this is not the actual compiler compiler that no. is with .NET. It's more of a, I guess... I, I think like an, ex- like an experimental type thing? Exactly. I think that's what it is at this point in time. It's not actually a standard. I was just looking at the frameworks that it, it specifies 4.5, so you couldn't even compile .40 code with it. Which I think is what you use at your job? That's correct. So uh, Roslyn is the sort of uh, fake compiler sort of framework that's embedded into Visual Studio. Um, that sort of, you know, uh, compiles your code as you type it in. So you even need a Visual Studio 2013 for it to work. So even if you had 2012, which 2012 supports 4.5, uh, you still wouldn't be able to use this. So that, so 4.5 even has its own, a different compiler. I'm pretty sure this is all experimental. Um, yeah, that's, uh, pretty good here. I, th- so. I think I think this new compiler I was just came back to me some more what the features were. I think it will let you define uh, different rules to validate by, and so now you can like enforce uh, coding standards better. So you can give it like this rule set, and it'll actually foul the build if uh, like coding standards don't fit. So it's, it it kind of gets into like what ReSharper does, how it will stop you from building if the rules are turned on right if certain things don't fit the coding standards so for instance you misplaced a curly brace on the improper line yeah something like that or or maybe you name a private variable with a capital letter letter beginning what's it not camel case what's the other case pascal case there you go if you do pascal case on a private variable or, or maybe perhaps you use uh var and you aren't supposed to use var at your company they could set it up so it would fail I'm pretty sure that's what I'd read about it a while back. I can't think of anything else offhand. Well, that's great. So, speaking about uh, .NET and uh, compiling stuff, it looks like SMD support is uh, already in .NET, uh, in a uh, package, that is. Uh, there. So, SIMD stuff, these are CPU-specific instructions that allow certain types of data to be processed faster. So, in some cases... It can, uh, you know, speed up what you're doing by eight times, it looks like. Um, 
So in this particular example, it gives the uh, like a rendering of a Mandelbrot fractal that looks like the uh, you know in the SSC two level, it makes it run about twice as fast. That was that was kind of interesting thinking about how they're doing that in the hardware, the processor, because it's almost like they're putting a like when the registers uh, we were talking about it in the fringe. They're putting the registers and then applying the same operation to all these these numbers at the very same time. I don't know how they would do that in the hardware itself to make the flow. Because, I mean, really, you can only perform one calculation, in a sense, on one core, one mathematical calculation. How would you do that against a whole block of uh, numbers in the one register at the same time? So, um, but then... I think it's more of efficiency in that you're not issuing instructions to fetch small pieces of data. You're issuing an instruction to get like a whole uh, block of data. So maybe it's less of it doing it at the same time and more that it's just that the processor knows it's doing the same operation on this block and yeah. the block's already loaded up into the register so I don't have to load it, load the instruction and and keep sending the whole system way through the processor is that it's just one shot so, and it knows what it's doing. And I've sort of touched on uh, SIMD and some of my uh, registers of various CPU architectures. Uh, I've been sort of doing a mini-series on my blog about that. Um, but hey, let's uh, move up further in the, uh, how should I say, the computing stack and to something like the start menu. So... We're, we both run Windows 7, right? We both That's have correct. we both have a start menu, or at least we can have a start menu. Uh, Windows 8, you really don't get an option. Uh, Windows 8.1, pretty much the same thing. But in Windows 8.1 update whatever, um, looks like there will be a start menu in that. So it'll be coming back to Windows 8. Windows finally realized that's what makes them distinctive. So, and it uh, looks like it'll be mm, almost the same in that, you know, it'll have those live tiles that are on the uh, Metro Start screen. It looks like it'll include some of those on the side. No, it's, it's interesting that they put the, uh, the widgets. Is that, is that what you meant by the live t- titles? Yeah, tiles there. Yeah, okay. It's it's interesting that they put them there because that kind of makes sense. It was always annoying back with like Vista, and there was a big deal with the widgets and stuff. But then you have like these things floating over on your side of your screen, getting in your way. Whereas like this, they're, they they're out of sight until you bring up the start menu. I think um, that makes sense. Yeah, I sort of have those. I believe they're called gadgets. Oh, gadgets. Yeah. Yeah. Are they, are they called widgets in Linux? Uh, they that, might be. Why did that? Because that came to mind. That's what was in my. So you can sort of see mine right there. Yes, I can. So you know, one of them's my CPU, uh, also CPU usage, and uh, the second one is my GPU usage and temperature, and then the outside temperature and my network usage. So it's those are features that you know are numbers that I would always like to see at a glance, yeah. and you know wouldn't would not exactly tolerate opening up a uh, start menu to do so. I guess I never got into the, the gadgets and well, well back when back when Vista first came out the computer wouldn't run all that well and it was like to use processing power to do a gadget to tell me how bad my processor was doing just didn't make sense so I, I just never really got into them. Uh, how bad was that computer? Was it like a single core? Oh, it was definitely a single core. I'm trying to think what the processor was of that particular one. 
Oh, that was an e-machine, so it had a Celeron processor in it. Ah. Yep. <laughs> and so. that is why it was slow. Integrated, integrated graphics, I'm pretty sure, too. So, this fancy Windows eye candy wasn't all that great in it either. <laughs> yeah, and I remember, I remember uh, Vista and even Windows 7. It doesn't exactly look pretty when there's not transparency there. Yeah, they're just kind of assuming that you would turn that on at this point in time. Yeah, otherwise it's like this ugly pale blue color. Ugh. So, uh, you know, with uh, Microsoft improving their products, uh, they might want to improve Internet Explorer. And uh, there is an actual website where you can see, uh, like, what kind of features that Internet Explorer will be supporting and what will it will not. So I was trying to figure out, is that an official Microsoft website? Yeah, I, I, well, yeah. it says Microsoft. Yeah, it is in Microsoft. I, I believe it is the modern.ie is a uh, Microsoft domain. wonder if Microsoft reserved the whole .ie domain names. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what, uh, uh, what top-level domain that is. What, what strings country. they pulled to get that. So, you know, it breaks, like, all the uh, web features down. You know, there's, uh, you know, various input APIs and status APIs and Canvas APIs and CSS features and stuff like uh, like Shadow DOM and, you know, all these, you know, more features than you even imagined uh, were in, you know, that a yes. web browser supported. There were definitely ones in there I didn't recognize. So, so back to the .ie as a matter of interest. Turns out that is an official domain name uh, for Ireland, maybe. Yes, for Ireland. That's what I was. Yes, I was trying to think what what the word I wanted. Top level domain name or yeah, name? country uh, code. Country code. There we go. Country code. Yeah, C that is exactly what it is, though. Yeah, CCTLD. I I recall looking that up once, and I'm like, you know, it, it's like, oh yeah, that's Ireland. So. Yeah, that that's pretty genius for Microsoft to to get that particular domain name. <laughs> so, um, uh, going stepping back for you know like a website with all the features of a web browser in it. Uh, apparently, Chrome does that too, or at least for Chromium. So you can but not, see, but with not with the .google uh, <laughs> domain name. <laughs> well, I hear that generic. Uh, top-level domains are coming, so it would not surprise me in the least that Google has reserved .google uh, for that, itself. That would kind of make sense for them to do that. <laughs> so the Chromium, I, I know there's separate source from Google. I wonder how, how much, are they separate, as separate as like LibreOffice Libre versus OpenOffice? I wonder if they're... Uh, not really. It's more of the... Uh, I guess the distinction between uh, Red Hat and CentOS, or uh, okay, you know, like one is the free version, the other one has like other things piled on it a little bit. We're like, oh, I was trying to think Wine and what, what's the crossover? Is that it? Yeah, crossover, crossover. or Sedega. I'm not even sure if that's I think still it's around. Crossover, Wine. I I I get. Uh, emails from the company yeah it, i think it, it is crossover i get emails from time to t time and every now and then because once i signed up for some demo from them so i could try it in linux and now they spam me forever more i probably should see next time i get one from them if there's a unsubscribe link they aren't that bad it's only been like 10 in the past five years i think hmm. so 
and then back to the uh, top level domains. Dot uh, Google going to Google makes <laughs> a lot more sense than dot Amazon going to Amazon. That it does. Of course, the Google no it, Google isn't quite the spelling of that the number right. The, the numbers actually because there's there's a Google number, but I don't think it's spelled quite that way. Yeah. So and uh, apparently the uh, like I can I think it was was uh, you know you know delivering out these top level domains and they decided that dot Amazon should be reserved for people who actually live in the Amazon. <laughs> I bet Amazon didn't like that very much. So, but uh, anyways. Uh, I'm not sure how I overlooked this in the last episode uh, with all the uh, APIs and all the gaming stuff going on, uh, but the WebCL specification has been released. So now you can do some heavy lifting with your JavaScript. So if uh, you've heard me talk about WebGL before, mm-hmm. so uh, this it's you know sort of like an analog. Uh, so WebGL is to OpenGL is the same as WebCL is to OpenCL. And, uh, you know, OpenCL, it, what it does is that it's, you know, sort of makes the GPU a generic processor a little bit. So if you have, like, say, an image and you want to do a filter on it, uh, WebCL will do that way faster than a CPU could. Ah, so, so that lets them actually mess with the hardware directly. Right. So it exposes like a GPU as a bunch of uh, small parallel processors. So, but uh, apparently it does also have compatibility like fallback modes in that it would use you know actual CPU cores if it you know had to. For like if you have integrated graphics or something like that. So, but even though integrated graphics are actually not as bad as they were these days, so. But uh, yeah, uh, you can finally do some really interesting stuff. Uh, unfortunately, this has not been implemented uh, by any browser, although I think there are plugins available that will expose these APIs. So, and uh, I, I believe I re- see, remember reading a entry, like a bug, Bugzilla entry for Firefox that they'd rather do uh, like a general uh, was it a compute shader in uh, WebGL rather than OpenCL? So, so they're saying that they won't be Firefox won't be implementing this then. Yeah, they're not planning on it. So I'm not sure what Chrome uh, has to say about it, but uh, yeah, there you go. It's interesting. So uh, yeah, it was. I think it might have been just yesterday. That uh, OpenSSL, a serious vulnerability in OpenSSL was discovered. That uh, apparently there's a flaw in it in the implementation of OpenSSL that apparently uh, will allow attackers to read up to 64 kilobytes of a server's memory at once. And this is pretty bad uh, because that 64 kilobytes might potentially contain an encryption key pair. So... Uh, like everyone's scrambling to up- update their systems with this. So could the attackers choose which 64K, the block that they wanted to read, I wonder? Or was it just pretty much what happened, whatever it happened to be pointing to at that time? Uh, I think it was just whatever happened to be pointing to at the time. So uh, apparently this is a problem that is might be solved uh, by recompiling with the OpenSSL no heartbeats flag enabled. Apparently it will protect from this vulnerability. 
So this has been uh, called the heartbeat vulnerability, or the heartbleed vulnerability. So here's the interesting question. What did the heartbeats option do? What was it supposed to do? So um, it sounds like it was like some sort of ping to keep, to keep a connection open, but that's just my guess based on the name. Okay. So, but, uh, yeah, you know, I've unfortunately been neglectful in uh, reading up on the news in the past two or so days. Uh, but, yeah, everyone's scrambling to, uh, you know, fix this. Someone even put up a nice fancy website for the vulnerability. Here, I'll, I'll put the link. Uh, where are you at there? There you go. So let's uh, check that out there. The heart has a nice heart with the dripping with blood and everything. Yes. So um, the this sort of begs the question in that, you know, very large corporate installations where security would be very prominent, like how how much bureaucracy would this have to go through to just update this one library? It's so important, though. I mean, you can't have someone reading reading that. I read on someplace, uh, one of the links I had seen today, they said that two-thirds of the internet they figured were affected by this. Yeah. And so if they were got private keys out of the data, that could be pretty bad. So, um, yeah. So if you uh, run a Linux box like I do, pretty much all you have to do is, you know, do an update and get the latest from the repos and you should be okay. So, and apparently this only affects uh, versions 1.01 and 1.02, which is apparently in beta. But if you run some of the older versions, you're apparently okay. Which is funny, because typically the older versions have bugs in them. Yes, this is, you know, surprise. (laughs) See, it was a good thing we didn't upgrade. (laughs) Yes, and uh, what was that one comment you uh, read? Uh, Let me find it. Oh, someone on the Minecraft forum when they uh, did it. Oh, that was in the fringe. Ah, there yeah. you go. Someone on the Minecraft forum says, apparently only Linux-based systems are affected by this. Good thing I have Windows. So, although OpenSSL, I, I've i actually used uh, OpenSSL, at least the toolkit on Windows. So it does actually exist on Windows too, although it's not like the default for many things. And- Plus, like, the the point that some people were making, what matters more so is the fact that the servers were running SSL and you're connecting to the servers. So, still irrelevant. So, so uh, let's uh, move on a little bit uh, to everyone's favorite Prenda Law blog. Uh, that's Ars Technica. Uh, apparently, it was uh, last week that uh, they went through all of Google's services and picked five things that Google should kill next. And it looks like you uh, have some opinion on this. Yes, they're saying that Google Earth and the new Google Maps are the same thing, but I disagree because the Google Earth has a lot more features in it, layers. I've even taken like a topographical map from the Game Commission of Gamelands, and you can overlay that over the, the land on Google Earth quite nicely. It has a lot of features like that and waypoint markers things that don't really exist in the Google Maps. And also, too, I hate the new Google Maps. Like, I cannot use it. I like the old Google Maps better. Like, you can't click the links. Uh, I think you can't middle-click on links is one of the things that annoys me because it's like Flash or something. And so you can't middle-click on links and have that come up in a new tab. And I don't know. I don't like the new Google Earth, new Google Maps online version. 
anyways. So, so there's my rant. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's you know quite a bit of feature overlap there. But you could also argue that you know these are on different platforms, like the same product but on different platforms. So th- this is true. I mean, I-, I see the point they're arguing in the article. They're saying they look the same. They basically do the same thing, which is true. But there's the extra features that are in the desktop version. The web version is not as easy to use as the desktop version, and they just need to make the usability better than I I think it could. But they they need to really polish the web version because the web version isn't that old either. It's only a couple months, I think. So, and then it uh, you know goes to the classic uh, you know there's Google Plus. So why is Orkut hanging around? So Orkut is the uh, like the older you know social networking stuff that they were doing uh, back like ten years ago. Um, but you know if they get rid of Orkut, I will I will not be able to make jokes at its expense anymore. See, I never even heard of it before. Well, maybe, but not like that. I remembered of it at all that it was a Google service until I saw saw your your comment there. I I was reading online though about it. They said mainly is people in. I think it was Brazil and one other country in that India. used it. India and Brazil. That was, was interesting that those demographics went to it for whatever reason. Yeah, and uh, I believe we made a joke at its expense uh, about three episodes ago. It was the one where you weren't on and I had to get Ryan for. So uh, The one I didn't listen to. Yes, and we even titled it the Orcut button. So, uh, see, then... Apparently there is Quick Quick Office versus Google Drive, which I can sort of see the similarities here, but I really wouldn't know because I have never used Quick Office before. I wasn't sure about the Quick Office either. Apparently it uses the Microsoft Office format for you know saving docs, uh, whereas uh, you know Google Docs has very limited uh, import capabilities with that. Or, is it is it an Android app? I'm almost it, getting it, that feeling. Yeah, it looks like it. So, and then there's Google Voice, which uh, you know apparently Google has been wanting to unify everything around Google, Google Hangouts. So you know this sort of makes sense. Which I mean, it's kind of going that way now. Pretty much, I've I've noticed. Google kind of phasing that out. At first, you could still call someone on the telephone, and it would use a Google Voice. Now, I think it's, you'd have to really hunt for it to bring up the Google Google Voice versus the Google Hangout uh, compared to how it used to be. So, yeah, I guess I'm okay with you know any one of these you know dying except for maybe the Google Earth. Yeah, the Google Earth is really the one that I'm not liking. But um. Because it, it is definitely different than the online version. It's not the online version's not ready. So, um, hey, speaking about uh, companies killing things, uh, Dyne DNS, uh, which is a service that allows you to you know have a you know a domain name connected to a dynamic IP address, uh, like the ones that you know come with you know residential connections. Uh, you can have your very own domain name. Uh, which, you know, I actually use DynDNS for my domain. Uh, but it looks like DynDNS has decided to kill their free offering of free dynamic DNS services. So, but you, uh, you gotta pony up some dough to get it. And this will be, uh, ending pretty soon. So is this the DNS, dynamic DNS you use? Uh, yes. 
but I pay them, so I'm not going to be affected by uh-huh. this. So, um, yeah, Dyn DNS is one of the uh, like the better services uh, for this. So, um, and I remember reading old tutorials on this. You know, I I remember getting this set up, and I think there were a few others, but this one was like the better one. Played with one years and years ago. I was going to set up the dynamic DNS, but I never actually did do it. I read into it. I think at some point in time, I was just happy to have my IP address, and there's really no one outside the world that would have any reason to hit it. So if I wanted to test something, I just did like a proxy and would hit my IP address and not need a website. Hmm. So uh, have you ever messed around with a CSV file? Yes, we use them extensively at work for various things. One that comes to mind is for controlled substance reporting. We output a file for the various states in the U.S. that they read this delimited file. Typically, it's pipe delimited, not comma delimited, as I see your problem is. Hmm. So, and have you ever got frustrated when a comma has been a legitimate part of the data? Well, like I said, we use use pipes. pipes, We use pipes. Which is, which probably occurs nowhere in generally existing text. Exactly, and we can actually type a pipe, too. So, with a keyboard. Yeah, that's a little bit of a problem of, you know, choosing a delimiter of characters that you can type. Apparently, there's a few ASCII characters that can be useful. Uh, apparently, character 31 is a field delimiter, so that's what you would use for a comma. And character 30 is a record delimiter, which is what you would use instead of a new line. It really sucks that literally no software in the world supports it, or at least advertises support for it. So by supports it, you mean as in the software allows you to choose that as a delimiter option? Uh, yeah, or just as a default uh, read-write you know, option. That would make sense as a default. I mean, probably part of the problem might be is it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. You can't look down and see that on your keyboard, so it's like, well, yeah. what should I use? <laughs> I know, let's use a pipe or let's use a comma or whatever. Commas are pretty stupid, though, because it's like, that's pretty common of a character. I mean, you may as well use E as your <laughs> delimiter. <laughs> Seriously. So, and it looks like uh, uh, ASCII has two more levels with group and file separators, which I'm not exactly sure what you would use the file separator for. I mean, like the group separator if you have like a list of things in a field. Hmm. File se- separator, perhaps if you're using a uh, your own home group virus file system and you're writing to the stream of bits and you want to have a character to represent the fact that you're starting a new file maybe it, isn't there an end of file character that does that oh there is some sort of an end of file character you're right about that so well maybe you'd use it within a file like if you'd have like two completely different csv files you'd want to con- con- concatenate them maybe that would, would kind of make sense so, but, uh, yeah, uh, I remember, uh, playing around with CSVs in my second job, uh, but then apparently there is a, uh, Java library where you can actually read and write, uh, like native Excel documents. Uh-huh. So you, you don't even have to worry about, you know, escaping commas or anything, and you can even, like, merge cells as well. That's pretty nice.
So uh, now let's do some appreciate and deprecate. But this week is going to be a deprecate. So if you recall, I've been working on some stuff at work that involves addresses. Um, and one of them involves uh, geocoding an address or a location. So what geocoding does is it takes an address and converts it to latitude longitude coordinates so you can put it on a map somewhere. And uh, you know I've you know one of our clients has like maybe 35,000 stores that they would need to you know place or geocode. And uh, you know it kind of helps if you you know do all the geocoding and then you know bring them up you know as needed, especially if you're going to search by like actual distance on the Earth. So I started looking into you know maybe I could you know spin up one of my own geocoding servers, uh, and it looks like there is actually projects for you to do that, and a lot of them uh, surround uh, OpenStreetMaps, the, the uh, like the OpenStreetMap project. Uh, it looks like it's, you know, pretty detailed, and, uh, like, uh, like right now, the entire world in, uh, OpenStreetMaps is about a 33 gigabyte file, so, uh, pretty big. <laughs> so, so you get that, and then you have to, you know, like, go through it and import it into a database, and, uh, for a lot of projects, a program called OSM2PGSQL does that. And it puts it into my favorite database, Postgres. Um, but unfortunately, it looks like every single project imports data in a different way. So, like, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I've somehow completely messed up my Postgres install going through and trying out these various projects. And now my Postgres server won't even recognize any geometric entities at all. Like... <laughs> Like, you know, I'm trying to do this one import, and it bombs out after about 30 seconds, complaining, add geometry column, what's that? And I'm pretty sure I have all of the dependencies and stuff installed. You know, Postgres apparently knows that there's a, like, a geographic extension. Apparently it says it has it loaded, but it kind of says, nope, what are you talking about, man? Error. <laughs> so, yeah... Uh, this is one of the reasons why I want to sort of reinstall my server. So and it's it's been two years since I you know updated it. So you know it's about time to go through and nuke it all. It's kind of weird that the the whole database would mess up like that and not work. Well, I mean, I tried to import things like ten times, and I've tried out maybe three projects. Uh, there's one uh, Nomenatum, and I. I think I also tried doing things with Mapnik, um, but uh, yeah, like each project apparently imports the data a different way, and it's recommended that you uh, you set up a different database in order for oh. it to import. Okay. But the problem is, if you have, I think I was trying to import the North America data set, which is, I want to say it's about 15 gigabytes. It took my server about five hours or so to process That's just that. So much data. So I wonder what it, what, how big is it in the database? Does the database expand it any? Because it would be making indexes and things like that. There's that, and I believe that 33 gigab gigabytes was also compressed. And I think the wikis state that you probably need about 300 gigabytes of free space. Wow. In order for it to run comfortably. That That's what I was wondering when it expands. That, that's quite a bit of space. So, yeah. Um, I might be coming back to this. I might not. 
So, um, but you know, if I do, that might uh, you know expand or rather increase my value to potential employers because you know if I'm you know good with maps and addresses and I even have my own server to spit out you know a bunch of geometric coordinates or uh, geographic coordinates you know and know how to operate that stuff you know that has many potential applications just outside of uh, you know e-commerce. Yeah, that's definitely uh, always good to have a skill like that, something that's marketable that makes you stand out like that. And that sounds like a fun thing, too, to do the addresses. So you dealing with massive da- amounts of data. That's when computer science gets interesting. Yeah, but uh, I think it all comes down to package management because all of these projects, once you to install all of these obscure libraries that I haven't even heard of <laughs> in order to build things. I'm, I'm just going to say it. I'm just done with building things. I, I know it's open source, God bless your hearts, but I want practical things. Practical things like binary, you know, <laughs> files. Already compile it. it. It does get annoying when you're building stuff and you get halfway through the build, it's like fails because you need such and such. Okay, I'll go install that. See, while you're building that, it's like, I need such and such. Okay, I'll go build that. Yeah. It's just it's, like a never-ending trail. You just want to stab something. <laughs> or someone, at least. Oh, at least I'm playing Borderlands 2 where I'm playing the character that uh, likes to smash himself in the face with a saw. So, you know, I guess you, you do what you do. So, so and uh, apparently no one has done what they done and uh, submitted any feedback because we don't have any this week. But if you would like to submit feedback, you can do so uh, on this very podcast page. If you're looking at the show notes, you should see a link, something like submit feedback to control structure. And uh, do that, and you should be right on your way. And uh, we might even read it and maybe send you a shout-out. So, and do not forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day, and I need to go buy me some hard drives. <laughs> Hi, Mom. How you doing? It looks like I might have some spare hard drives. I'm not sure what Mom does with hard drives. She just, like, leaves them alone. So, ah, so what do you plan on doing? Well... Still want to work on Ruby on Rails after I get my other monitor cable back. Uh, I've got the adapter, but I found out that didn't fit my graf- graphics card. So maybe with a dual monitor setup, I'll be able to try doing some programming. I'm trying to find a plugin for Firefox so that I can type one word into the awesome, so-called awesome bar and have it search. <laughs> Still deprecating the- that awesome bar. Yes. I found one called InstaFox, but it looks like you have to type in G first and then type in your search term. So I'm not sure if I'm buying that one either, but uh, um, I will see if it passes the colon test. Uh, okay, it's not bad. It's not bad. I typed in G, define colon word, and it works. So that's not bad. I've also heard of extensions that if you put a exclamation point at the front of it, it'll go to DuckDuckGo. So, I don't think I've ever heard of DuckDuckGo. Yeah, it's that other search engine that doesn't track you, supposedly. Oh, the anonymous one. I think I have heard of that one. That's to be purple, so that means I've been... Yeah, I've been there before. Yep. So probably should use that one instead of Google, just to not use Google. <laughs> well, throw off their, uh, you know, their idea of who you are. Exactly. So, but then you need to change who you are. What's that? But then you need to change who you are to invalidate Google's data on you. Yes, 
all the existing gigabytes and gigabytes of information they've stored upon my my patterns of who I am and how they've analyzed my email for however what I've had Gmail since like probably it was in beta like I got it yeah like I was I had to get an invite from some random stranger online to get in so that must have been t- before two thousand seven I was a little yeah, I'm I'm not sure when Gmail went out of beta, but it was in beta for the longest time. And that's that's probably what stopped it from being shut down so early. Because if a Google project is not in beta, it's being shut down. That's pretty much the rule for every Google project. Hey, have you heard? They're doing a new beta. It's called Search. <laughs> <laughs> so, the original Search beta. So, uh... Uh, let's see. Uh, speaking about cables and stuff. Um, so with the uh, warmer weather, I've been walking around the park that's next to my apartment building quite a bit. Um, and I realized one thing, like almost immediately, that the earbuds I have totally suck. So I'm going to buy earbuds with my hard drives. There you go. Saving the shipping. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I'll also uh, buy at some point a like sort of extender cable to plug my uh, MP3 player into my car. Um, the one I have, it's sort of falling apart. It's kind of cheaply made. So So you actually have like a port right on your car radio to plug into? Yep. Yeah. I have an old board that doesn't do that. <laughs> you got to use... I, I bought What's that? You got to use a cassette adapter? No, I, it does have a CD player in it, but I, I, I bought an FM radio adapter and just... Uh, broadcast it to that so that that actually works pretty good I, I like it a lot and it has some stations on it that aren't like normal american stations <laughs> and my car can actually pick those up really i i don't know why but then like uh my dad has an old ford van and it can't tune into some of the the stations that my escape can so that's kind of oh. interesting so it works pretty good so uh let's see it looks like i might be posting about borderlands 2 pretty soon on my blog so, um, and then I, the current post up there right now is a rant on the, uh, USPS address verification APIs, you know, uh, going through, you know, evaluating various services at work. And so, you know how SOAP works, right? How what works? SOAP, the uh, simple object access protocol. Um, faintly. It's it's based on XML. You post XML to a server, and that's sort of like your remote call. Right, yes. And the server throws back XML at you. Well, for USPS, you send XML in the form of a URL parameter. That does not feel right to me. Well, they sense at, there is a parameter that is XML. Yes, the, you know, like the request XML equals, and then your XML string. As a URL parameter. How messed up is that? <laughs> yeah. I've seen crazy things like that though before. So, I mean, how did I put it? So, you know, I realized that after the dot-com bubble popped, employed programmers were smoking the XML crack as a way of coping for the fact that they were the only people that they knew who had jobs. But holy crap, whoever designed this missed a memo somewhere. <laughs> So. There's been a lot worse programming that I've seen before. At least it's XML and not like comma delimited <laughs> data. <laughs> well, speaking your of... Your addresses have commas in them. 
Well, hey, I gotta go take my commas and take XP behind the woodshed, so I guess I will uh, talk to you guys later, so have a good one. Okay, you too.